Welcome to the new WellMed Radio, a service of WellMed Medical Management. Over the next half hour, WellMed Radio will educate you about the health and wellness of adults everywhere. Co-hosts Dr. Marissa Charles and veteran broadcaster and attorney Ron Aaron will share information to improve your health and well-being. Here are Ron Aaron and Dr. Marissa Charles. Well, thank you very much and welcome to WellMed Radio. I'm delighted to be here uh, along with our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles. We come to you every week at this time, but we always forget to tell you, and we really should every week, that podcasts of all of our shows are available. If you miss a show or you listen to it and you say, you know, I need to hear that again, or, you know, my aunt ought to hear this, or my uncle or my dad, you can go to Google and just Google WellMed Radio Podcasts, and they will pop up, and they're available at no cost. You can email them, you can download them, and uh, uh, you can cuddle them, whatever you want to do with our podcast. So, Marissa, normally what we do is I read a little sheet that says you did this, this, and this. I thought it might be interesting for you to tell us about yourself. Okay. So, so talk to us about Marissa. About me, sure. So I'm a family practice physician working for WellMed for about five years now. I work at the Ingram location on um, 410 and Ingram right near the mall. Um so I've been, you know, family medicine, you know, for 15 years now and have been practicing in several different locations, including all, all over Texas, you know, Corpus Christi. I actually went back and worked in my hometown, which is a very small town called Zapata, Texas, down on the uh, down on the border. I was going to say you grew up in a speck of a town. Pretty much. On the border. On the border. Speaking Spanish as a kid. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Spanish was my first language, so... Um, but have been here in San Antonio, very happy working, um, seeing a variety of patients, mostly adults. Um, but I am family practice trained. So now the interesting thing, and I mentioned this to you the first time uh, we talked, uh, you have no accent and oh. growing up speaking Spanish, you have a little hint of, but what you have is a kind of, uh, an intriguing, uh, little hint of an accent. Oh, yeah. uh, how did you lose the accent? Well, I mean, school, everything was in English. I mean, I was in Texas, so, um, and my parents speak English, but my grandparents didn't. So it was that we predominantly spoke Spanish sure. at home. But, you know, I had older siblings, and we grew up listening to music in English, and everything else is in English. So That's cool. Now, are little Charles is running around your house? I have two daughters. Two daughters. They're 12 and 10. And I hope So they're in... almost my height now, so <laughs> they're growing like weeds. Encouraging them to be bilingual, I hope. You know, I'm trying, but it is hard. Yeah. It's hard. So um, um, they're going to be taking Spanish in school, and I do talk to them in Spanish. And well, half good. the time these days are like, what are you saying, Mom? Uh, so. <laughs> our kids are in uh, uh, Spanish immersion in, in yeah, school. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and, and so far it's working out pretty well, but they're younger than yours. We've got two mm-hmm. uh, twin boys who are seven. They're moving into second grade, and an eight-year-old moving that's into awesome. third grade. So we'll see. The Spanish so far is uh, working. No, it you know the it's such a big um, skill. You know, it really does help out, especially in the medical field, because we do get a lot of patients, especially here in San Antonio, that do not speak much English. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Well, let's welcome to our WellMed Radio Hotline, Dr. Dawn Rudd, who is at WellMed at Medical Center. She's born and raised in Sleepy Hollow, and I gather that is truly Sleepy Hollow, Dr. Rudd, the headless yes. horseman. Yes. That is actually the name of where I grew up. It's it's really uh, only about 10 miles outside of the Bronx in New York City. That's pretty cool. I, I've interviewed over the years thousands of people. You're the first who grew up with Ichabod Crane. Uh, we did, yes. 
That's pretty neat. Now, you earned your BS in biomedical engineering and materials science engineering from Rensselaer Polytech Institute, then an MS in bioengineering from Clemson University. Go Tigers! Worked as an engineer and laboratory manager at Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania for five years. Then you decided to change careers. Went to medical school at Pennsylvania State University on a military health profession scholarship. Joined the Air Force, completed internal medicine residency at Wilford Hall at Lackland here. After eight years, left the military. You were in private practice for five years and the last nine years. And worked for the Veterans Administration as Chief of Academic Medicine and then later as the Deputy Chief of Primary Care. And then you joined WellMed in December 2019. You know, it's a shame you're not an overachiever. (laughs) (laughs) I think that just shows how old I am, that's all. No, what we need to do, uh, and and I have a daughter, is bring you to every single kid who's in school Mm -hmm. to show them what you can do, man or woman, because you are... The living abonomy of STEM. You are STEM, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So what was it about engineering and, and biosciences uh, that, that got you intrigued at first? You know, um, I was the first person in my family to go to college. And in high school, I just kind of liked physics, and I didn't know anything about going to college. My high school was really small, and my physics oh. teacher was like, well, if you like physics, you should study engineering. And I said, okay. And so I had gotten a very nice scholarship to go to the college that I went to, which is, it's mainly, you know, it's a polytechnic institute, so it's, it's mostly STEM related. So I studied engineering. Um, but when I graduated, I wasn't really sure what I was doing. So I went to grad school, which is what a lot of people do when they don't know what they mm-hmm. want to do with their life. Um, but while I was there, I decided, you know, I don't want my PhD. I left and, and it was, it was just sort of the putting together of puzzles. Uh, you know, engineering is a lot of putting, pulling a bunch of pieces together and trying to see if you can come up with an answer. So I had decided that I would go to medical school, and that's how I ended up being an internist, is because it's kind of the engineering of medicine. That's really pretty cool, and, and you haven't looked back since, right? Oh, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Now, we are living in a, a day and age where a tiny little microscopic virus has turned everybody's life upside down. Uh, for my kids and uh, for Marissa's kids, uh, school was not the same overnight. It became virtual. Overnight, you were not in a classroom. Overnight, you only saw your teacher on a video screen. And overnight, there are people all over this community who are looking for that tiny little virus to kill it and clean it up. And so one of the things we wanted to talk with you about is antimicrobial stewardship, which I'm assuming means carry a spray can of something and spray it everywhere. Not exactly, Ron. Um, You know, we're talking more about antibiotics and misuse of antibiotics. So I didn't know if Dr. Red wanted to fill us in a little on that. Yeah, so so simply put, antimicrobial or antibiotic stewardship simply means improving the way that we use and prescribe antibiotics. Exactly. Um, Right. So it's critical to treat infections effectively, and but in the process of doing that, protecting our patients from harm that can be caused by the unnecessary use of antibiotics mm-hmm. and to combat antibiotic resistance that can occur if you use antibiotics when they're not needed. Now, I grew up in a day and age, I happen to be 78, 
Uh, and when you went to the doctor, if you didn't leave with an antibiotic, it was a failed doctor's appointment. You were disappointed. You were sad. You knew you were going to die. And every visit, I think, you came home with something. That's changed now, hasn't it? Well, not as much as you would think. So at least 30% of all antibiotic prescriptions that are given out are given out unnecessarily. And in any given year, that's 47 million courses of antibiotics. Wow. That's pretty impressive when you look at it that way. That's a big number. And <laughs> I've talked to lots of physicians and primary care physicians like both uh, you and, and, and Marissa, Dr. Redden. Uh, some will say, you know, rather than go through the whole educational litany of why you don't need this, it's just easier to write it and it's not going to hurt you. So that's not exactly true. So that's part of what we wanted to talk about today. Is but you that hear that. You do hear that. And it sometimes is easier to just give the prescription when you have a patient who has that expectation. And you got 10 more in the waiting room. Exactly. But what we've right. learned time and time again is that the majority of, for example, upper respiratory infections are caused by viruses. Really? And an antibiotic won't touch it? No. You're going to get better anyway. I'm a perfect example about how begging for a Z-Pack uh, can come back and bite you because at at one point, this is several years ago, I was feeling, you know, kind of down and, and a droopy and congestion. And uh, I talked uh, my physician then into prescribing a, a Z-Pack. And I immediately, within days, ended up with C. diff, which is, mm. a, look, both of you, oh, I, yeah, it, you don't want C. diff. So what that little Z-Pack did was perfect. It killed all the good bacteria. Right. So and left the bad ones in my colon, right? I'm sorry. I think you cut out there for a minute. No, I was saying it left the bad bacteria alive and well in my colon. Right. So Clostridium, Clostridium difficile is a bacteria that will overgrow in your colon if you take an antibiotic. And for most people, that doesn't occur. But in the unfortunate people that that does occur, when the antibiotic kills off the good bacteria the bad bacteria, like this one, C. diff, will grow and can cause a serious life-threatening infection. So every year, there's about 225,000 cases of symptomatic C. diff or Clostridium difficile infections. And of those, almost 13,000 people will die every year from that infection. Wow. And so I'm one of the lucky ones. <laughs> Absolutely, and yeah. that's directly related to misuse or overuse of antibiotics. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to WellMed Radio at 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Dr. Dawn Rudd is with us on our WellMed Radio hotline. She's at the WellMed at Med Center Clinic, a PCP there. And our co-host is here in the studio, uh, Marissa Charles, who is also a WellMed physician, and we are delighted uh, to have a chance to share information with each and every one of you. So, uh, Dr. Rudd, knowing that uh, prescribing an antibiotic uh, when it's not necessary uh, seems to be common sense these days, but you're still finding it uh, being prescribed. Why is that? What are, what are doctors saying to you? Well, sometimes it's just that, you know, patients are wanting something, and so there's the, there's the urge to please your patients. There's a misunderstanding that it's a virus and not a bacteria, um, there's also just the, the, there's been changes with knowledge over the last, you know, 10, 20 years that we don't need to use the antibiotics as much as we used to. 
So, for example, um, people are being given antibiotics for upper respiratory infections when they're not needed. So most upper respiratory infections are a virus. But if you were to go and seek medical attention for an infection when you get diagnosed with bronchitis, you are 40% likely to get antibiotics if you were seen in an urgent care facility. But if you went to an emergency room, that's about 25% chance that you would get antibiotics. And if you go to your primary care clinic, you're going to get antibiotics for that same set of symptoms only about 17% of the time. So what is needed, and this is where antimicrobial stewardship comes in, is just better re-education from all of the knowledge that the CDC and the FDA has been able to get from all of the research that comes from the antimicrobial stewardship process to show that these antibiotics are either not needed as often or they're not needed in the dose that's given or we're using the wrong antibiotic. We're going to talk more about that in just a minute. Stick with us. I'm Ron Aaron along with our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. You may be experiencing anxiety or stress regarding all the news about COVID-19 or what is commonly referred to as coronavirus. You are not alone. Optum is opening its emotional support helpline, providing access to specially trained mental health specialists. This is a toll-free number and it will be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as necessary. This is a free service. Anyone in need of emotional support is welcome to call. The number is 866-342-6892. That's 866-342-6892. One more time, 866-342-6892. We are rocking along here on Wellmet Radio on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. We're talking about antimicrobial stewardship, trying to control and monitor and put antibiotics to the most effective use possible. We're also still in the wake, and let us hope it is not coming back bigger and better and stronger than ever, of the COVID-19 coronavirus that slammed this country and the world. More than 100,000 people in the United States are dead today uh, as a result of that virus and more to come. And in the case of what we were talking about, uh, Dr. Rudd, it fits right in uh, because sometimes uh, what uh, that coronavirus will present as is an upper respiratory uh, congestion infection. Uh, and some patients are, are asking and pushing for an antibiotic, uh, which may not help and may exacerbate it, may, may make it worse. Yeah, so taking an antibiotic when it is not needed causes a variety of complications. So the biggest one that we're concerned with is that it can lead to the development of what's called a superbug. So the germs or bacteria become resistant when we use antibiotics in the wrong times. So if we use the wrong dose, the wrong medication, or we prescribe it when someone does not have a, a bacterial infection and they have a viral infection. So once you develop what are called superbugs, then when someone catches that superbug, our antibiotics cannot work to either contain or kill that infection. I think so some really folks... Good, a good example of that is 
people who get strep pneumonia. Streptococcus pneumonia is one of the most common bacteria that causes pneumonia, and it is now resistant to most of the antibiotics that we used to use to treat it. Is there a vaccine for that? Yes, there is a vaccine for strep pneumonia, and it does help prevent you from getting a serious strep pneumonia infection and dying from strep pneumonia. I think as a woman patient, they beat me over the head to get that one, and I have it. They have the other one, too, the older pneumonia vaccine. Both are being given, I believe. Yes. There are two different types of vaccines for that. And, and children are given that vaccine also. When you think about uh, how we grew up in a world uh, where when vaccines and, and uh, antibiotics came on the scene, all hailed as magic bullets seen as only good, uh, the good that comes from uh, certainly uh, preventing serious, serious illness, uh, both with vaccines and with antibiotics, it's hard for some people to accept the fact that there's danger there. Yes, that's very true. So as healthcare workers, it is really our job to help our patients understand and to educate our patients that antibiotics are a drug and they can be dangerous. So every year, antibiotic-related adverse drug reactions occur and leads to about 150,000 emergency room visits. Um, most of these are uh, antibiotic allergic reactions, which can be as minimal as just a rash, all the way up to a severe life-threatening reaction called anaphylaxis. And my wife is allergic to penicillin, so whenever Mm -hmm. we go in, we make sure they understand that uh, uh, she's allergic to that drug. And anaphylaxis means you can't breathe. It can be everything. It can be that you can't breathe, and it can go all the way to cardiovascular arrest. How do you know when you start seeing a patient whether they may be allergic to one of those antibiotics, unless they've had a reaction in the past. Well, that's the unfortunate thing you don't. So the more you take something, the your body gets sensitized to it, and then you can have that reaction. It could happen the second or third time you take that medication, or it can happen the 20th or 30th time that you take that medication. Now, for your patients... Uh, and for Dr. Charles as well, uh, you both uh, obviously are very careful when you are prescribing antibiotics. You you, uh, you don't rush into that as the uh, first line of defense. When it comes to something like the coronavirus, if you are seeing that, how do you begin treating something for which there is no treatment? And well, I'll let both of you take that think one. Think about that one, yeah. yeah. Um, uh-huh. Well, you know, with coronavirus in particular, you know, we know that there isn't a any good treatments for that particular virus, and so it's symptomatic care. You know, we talk about um, prevention being the first thing, you know, trying to make sure that people are wearing their masks and washing their hands and using their hand sanitizer, um, trying to reduce the risk of exposure. That's the first thing that we want to make sure everybody's aware of. But other than that, once a patient has come up positive for that particular virus, it's symptomatic care. So we treat the the temperature, we treat the cough, we treat the fever, we push the fluids, we get plenty of rest. And then if the respiratory symptoms get severe enough, then they often do require hospitalization and support. And we know certainly, Dr. Rudd, from what we've read, that uh, those at higher risk from that virus are older people. And, and maybe now we're starting to believe uh, younger people as well. But uh, for seniors, 65 and over, uh, the uh, norovirus uh, poses particular risk, does it not? Yes, it, 
It, it does. And so, you know, the coronavirus is not, with respect to who's at risk, is not that much different than any other illness. So persons that are older, persons that have underlying health conditions such as heart disease, lung disease, um, diabetes, kidney disease, um, or they're immunosuppressed for some other reason, such as they're undergoing cancer treatment, they're taking medications that suppress their immune system, either for a rheumatologic disorder or, say, they had a transplant in the past. Those are the populations of people who are more at risk that if they get the virus, their body isn't going to be able to mount as good of a response so that because their immune system is not as good, and so they're more likely to get sick. But the unfortunate situation is there's always going to be young, healthy people that will catch a virus, and they could also have a severe complication. It's interesting. I saw a breakdown on CNN the other day of the over 100,000. It's a huge number. People who have died in just a few months, the vast majority are over 70. Yes, that would be what would be expected. Um, from from a virus, especially an aggressive virus that causes a severe illness. Now I want to talk. Just go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, even with influenza, that's the the population that we tend to see get hit more severely, and we have more deaths from influenza in that patient population as well. And I know WellMed and all the other healthcare providers and, and uh, uh, clinics across the city will begin soon uh, the push to get flu vaccine. The annual flu vaccine season is coming in just a few months. That's true. And, and again, you know, the, we don't have anything like that for the coronavirus. And so we have to use the tools that we have because we've seen patients that have even been co-infected with influenza and coronavirus at the same time. Really? So when you have that kind of a situation, if you're at least vaccinated against influenza, your likelihood of developing a severe uh, response is going to be a little bit less. Talk to us a little bit, both of you, about uh, those who are opposed uh, to vaccines, who just drive me crazy because, you know, as someone who's lived long enough to see uh, vaccines stop polio, who's lived long enough uh, certainly to see, uh, you know, smallpox and other diseases that have been uh, stopped in their tracks with a vaccine, uh, the anti-vaxxers would put a lot of people at risk, would they not, Dr. Charles? Absolutely. Um, so we do have something called herd immunity, where if enough people, if enough of the population is vaccinated, it does protect in some degree the people that are not vaccinated. But especially with something like coronavirus that we don't even have a vaccine for at this time, um, you know, we we need to definitely encourage everybody to obtain the vaccines that are available, like the pneumococcal, like the um, influenza vaccines. Um, even tetanus, you know, which is still out in the community, we need to make sure that we're vaccinated against. Whenever you say herd immunity, I think of some of the wildlife films in which the wildebeest will gather around a tiny little baby wildebeest to protect her, but one smart little lion mm -hmm. sneaks through and grabs her. It's not perfect herd immunity. No, no, absolutely not. Um, and which is why we do see so many cases of uh, infections with, you know, viruses that we have vaccines against um, because of the lack of vaccination, like we saw measles outbreaks, you know, earlier um, last year. Are you recommending any update on vaccines to your patients? Should we take, uh, I haven't, I never had a measles vaccine because I had measles as a kid. Right. Well, most people are um, protected against the measles either because they had it as a child or have had the vaccinations. Um, you know, unless you're particularly high risk, there is no need to update your measles vaccines. 
Um, Dr. Rudd, I don't know if you have any other um, suggestions or recommendations about that. No, I mean that that is what is the current recommendation. What they what was found about 20 years ago is uh, depending on when you received your vaccine for measles, uh, you were either given one or two types of measles vaccines, and so there were. A group, there was a population of people that did need to get a booster for measles. And so those were the people that have been targeted recently to come in and get a, another measles vaccine, depending on how old you were and at the timing of your actual measles inoculation when you were a child. Now, we are flat out of time. We've got about 30 seconds for you, Dr. Rudd, to say thanks for being here and goodbye. Is there anything we left out? No, I think the only thing that I would say is that um, the best thing to do is that when it comes to being sick, that more than likely you do not need an antibiotic, and it's most of the time you can wait and see, and if you're sick past 10 days, that's probably the time then you might need to consider an antibiotic, but usually most things will go away within seven days, and it's, it's usually most of the time it's okay to wait, and if your doctor says you don't need it, you probably don't. Hey, thanks so much. A delight to talk with you. Dr. Don Rudd, WellMed at Med Center. We appreciate you being here. She is a delight. Absolutely. And I learned a lot okay. about vaccines. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Rudd. You Bye. take care. Thank Bye-bye. You. You've been listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Dr. Marissa Charles. We'll check on you next week right here on WellMed Radio. Thank you for listening to WellMed Radio a service of WellMed Medical Management. We welcome your emails with suggestions and comments on this program at radio at wellmed.net. And please be sure to tune in next week for another edition of WellMed Radio.